Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troupe, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. What is propaganda? How can we tell that we are being persuaded by false or fake narratives. In today's podcast, we will explore the nature of propaganda and how easy it is to believe in rhetoric that is based on false assumptions. How can a listener, a reader, consumer discern whether there are facts and evidence backing any particular report, statement, or argument? Is there some way to know if something that you read or hear is likely to be true or false? What is confirmation bias? And what is negativity bias? And how do they contribute to propaganda? How does suggestion relate to propaganda or false statements that can, and what can we do to protect ourselves against false suggestions? What about scientific standards for truth? What are they? And finally, do parents offer propaganda to their children when they say, eat your spinach because it has a lot of vitamins, or don't stare at the computer screen because it will harm your eyes? Or is this simply good guidance? We will talk together about how parenting and parental authority can help or hinder children in developing the ability to shift through propaganda. So once again today we have Dr. Robert Caper with us and so we're going to look at this issue of propaganda. And Robert is a psychiatrist and he is the author of three books and numerous articles on psychoanalysis. He has lectured in countries all around the world and currently resides in New York City in Vermont, where he practices and teaches. So welcome once again, Robert. Thank you. And Polly, I thought maybe the best place for us to jump in today would be in helping our, our, our listeners understand confirmation bias and negativity bias. I'm not sure that a lot of people really mm-hmm. understand either of those terms. Um, okay, I mean, I'm happy to start with that. They won't become probably very useful until we really understand propaganda. But let me just, I'll do a quick run through. Confirmation bias has been studied by cognitive scientists, by philosophers, by scientists, by media people. And the brief definition is that it's a tendency that all of us have to actually confirm what we already know again and again and again. Uh-huh. That's helpful. So that yeah. if you, and if you think of it from a developmental point of view, so I follow uh, Piaget's ideas, we tend to affirm our paradigm of experience again and again. So rather than seeing something that's different, 
and saying, oh, I don't know about that. We just assimilate it into what we already know. And we say, oh yeah, that's, that's oh, I know one of those. Oh yeah, I've seen yeah, that sort of yeah. thing before. I know exactly what that is. So this idea of assimilating to your schemas or to the frame of reference, your assumptions, and then when you stop assimilating, like I don't know what's going on, that's called accommodation, where you have to stop just knowing what's going on and say, mm oh, I don't know what's going on. Hey, what's going on? And that is what people do rarely. Right. Most of the time, starting when we're very young, it benefits our survival to assimilate everything to what we already know and accommodate only when we have to. So that puts us, even as youngsters, in the framework of over-confirming what we know and assuming we know what's going on. And that actually leads to all sorts of mistakes in our logic and in our perceptions. But we, we don't stop doing it because it makes it sort of easy, an easier way to live than to go around every day saying, I have no idea whether I'm going to live through the whole day or not. We just assimilate everything. Oh, this is just a regular day and everything, I understand everything's going on. So that's like a short sort of... Um, that's helpful. Thank uh, you. But then yeah. I, I will also talk about yeah. ne negativity yes, bias. Yes, yeah. and then, so negativity bias is the, is the tendency to remember what doesn't work. There, there's also a positivity bias, so it's not uh -huh. by itself. But it's a tendency, and most people uh, have this tendency of... I, I, I think certainly in Western societies, per, perhaps in all societies... To remember what doesn't work, what goes wrong, what hurt you, harmed you, what you didn't like, and to notice those things much more often than you notice what does work, what works well, what actually supports you, what you should be grateful for, and so on. Those things sort of slip by, and instead you notice what's not working. So you tend to have, as a human being, this might not be obvious to people, a more critical eye than you do have a more grateful eye, let's say. You, you notice what is not going well, and you notice where you are having difficulty and when you're, where you're hurt and harmed. So you have a negativity bias in your overall perception, and you also have a negativity bias in your memory, that you remember things that uh, you didn't like or you were, that went against you and so on. So the, both of those biases function in regard to propaganda. Certainly, but, so yes. So yeah, we yeah, can yeah. launch from there into talking to Robert about propaganda because yeah. he writes about it. Yeah. So I wonder if you would just kind of define propaganda and suggestion and then talk about how they function you know, in regard to um, media, advertising, everybody I think knows advertising, but media, marketing, and then science and medicine and <laughs> whatever Could else. I, I'd like to just say, because I didn't mention this time, we did in our last broadca broadcast together, in Robert's book, Beyond, and Thoughts Too Deep for Words, one of the things I wrote down from this book, which I love, is something that you said, Robert, where propaganda's intent is to circumvent thought and reflection, and it undermines learning from experience. 
the propagandist intends to dominate another's mind precisely to prevent him or her from originating his or her own thoughts. And I just thought, wow, that was such a great, it was so clear. It was so clear. I think you've answered Polly's right. question. <laughs> I couldn't do that. You have to unpack that now <laughs> because with your, <laughs> in your own words, with, yes. with his, with your great <laughs> wisdom, you Robert. Answered my question in your words. Okay. You know, I think most people again may think of propaganda as something that's that's heavily loaded like on a billboard or coming out of a of a oh, um, you know bullhorn or you know it's something. That's being you're talking about. Well, yeah, those are sort of gross and blatant mm. forms of propaganda, and I think the same is true of political battles. You know, there's, a, there's a modern version of of that of that old adage that I read recently that that goes, "Science plus politics equals politics." <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Those are those are gross examples, and the kind of propaganda I'm talking about in the book are um, much more subtle and usually unconscious. I mean, what we think of in in these these gross examples of propaganda are are consciously and carefully contrived, very cleverly contrived, to kind of scare people or seduce people into something or, you know, to stop them from thinking, you know, because they're they're going with their their fear or they're going with their, their excitement or, or something like that. We do that unconsciously, and it's no less clever because we learn through experience uh, with people how to do it. And some of us are better than others, but everyone knows how to do it. So what I'm interested in in this book is really interactions between people, and there's some, there's some interesting scientific work that goes back to the 60s about how people can influence each other unconsciously, without without them knowing they're doing it and without the other person knowing they're doing it. And some of this work has to do with the work of a man named uh, Condon who filmed two adults having a conversation, high-speed cinematography. This was back in the 60s, that was the technology. Um, And discovered that someone who's speaking makes very subtle movements in time with the speech, with the rhythm of the speech. They're so subtle that you really have to slow things down a lot with high-speed camera work to, to see it. Furthermore, the person listening makes similar movements in response to the rhythm of the speaker. But what's most, what was most surprising and I think kind of amazing about this work is this also happens if the listener is two days old. Mm-hmm. Ah. He had a number of babies between two days and two weeks of age, and he saw that they also, for extended periods of time, I think strings of 86 words or something, they kept time uh, with their bodily movements, mm-hmm. and that this was obviously true whatever language was being spoken. It did not happen with babies in response to rhythmic sounds, like tapping sounds. And if you recorded so, it, ha- it happened in response to co- recorded speech, as well as live speech. So it wasn't, you know, cues given by the speakers, because it worked when the sound was coming from a tape recorder. But if you took the tape and you chopped it up into little pieces and, and re- reassembled the tape, so that these were human voice sounds, but they did not mean anything, 
you didn't get that effect. So it's a very spooky result, which is that you know babies as young as two days of age somehow know, they don't know it, they're, not, they're conscious of it, but I'm not saying that, but their bodies respond to meaningful human speech. Mm -hmm. And only to meaningful human speech in this way. So that's one, one piece of work. Another piece of old experimental work, lab work, was uh, by a man named Tronic. It's a, it's a famous experiment called the still face experiment in which had mothers and their babies and the baby would be propped up in a, a little seat facing the mother and the mother would interact and coo and talk and you know do this no these normal things that you do with babies and the baby would be cooing and smiling back and talking and then uh, the experimenter told the mother okay now i want you to keep to be silent and keep a perfectly expressionless face for three minutes mm. so she did and the baby would sort of go on as before for a short while but getting no response would start to look around and you know look away and start to kind of squirm and show signs of real discomfort and eventually it would start crying and sort of fall apart and have to be comforted. So uh -huh. there's, there's something about this responsive face that babies need in order, uh, in order to stay together. Without that, they fall apart. I just want to say one, one thing there, just to, to point out that it's not just babies. John Gottman's work on couples has both of these um, categories that you're talking about. The one is the slight movement. He videotaped thousands of couples, and then he slowed the videos down. He had them sitting in chairs with a camera right on them, both of them, and he'd have them talk about a small conflict or disagreement. And then he videoed their faces close up, and he also measured how much they shifted around in the seat. And he could tell after 15 minutes with 98% accuracy whether they were going to split up or not because of the subtle movements in their faces and their bodies when they were disagreeing. And he was trying to pick up contempt and hostility, not from their words at all, but from the ways that they shifted their eyes and so on. Body so, language. so they were communicating at that level of the infant and the, the, they were communicating at a level that was too deep for words. And then similarly, he, he ran um, videotapes of couples in their apartments for weekends. And so he has, again, like he followed 1,400 couples for thousands of hours, and he found that if one person made a bid for attention, hey, you know, how you doing, or just saying hi, and the other person didn't respond to the bid, that their chances of separating were much higher. Because again, the blank response to the bid actually made the person who made the bid, like the baby is bidding, you know, and the mother does nothing. And then the person who gets the blank does essentially the same thing as the infant. It turn, the person turns away, they're, they're irritated, they're upset. It's not that the other person has said anything, they haven't. But the, the person who made the bid is actually reacting to it. It's kind of like beyond sitting in the room not saying anything, you know. It's like there's a reaction to that blankness. It's not a nothing burger.
you know, for adults <laughs> because we're communicating in, in, in ways outside of words, just like the infant and the mother did. So it's, it's a similar kind of uh, result for his research on couples that I think is really interesting when you put it together with Tronic's work because it, 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 makes, it makes complete sense. I think. Well, that's precisely right. And, and the importance of this is that this level of communication, if you want to call it that, it's not exactly communication on, on a very deep level and, a, and on, a, on an emotional level. So you can yeah. have an emotional impact on another person, another adult, that's much more subtle. Uh, you don't have to do as much as, as babies require because they're not reading you quite as well. But over years and years, we get to be able to read people pretty well. And so a lifted eyebrow mm -hmm. or, or a rolled eye or, uh, for example, someone's talking to you and you say, you say, hmm, you know, positive. You say, oh, yeah. that's all it takes. Right. And the, the, the feeling that the other person gets from that is completely different. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so that's, that's a level I got interested in. That's a level of communication I got interested in because it's, it's, as you say, it's certainly present in adults and it's present in a very powerful way. And it's so subtle that it can fly under the radar of everybody. Nobody knows they're doing it and people aren't knowing that people don't know they're doing it. People don't know they're seeing it or hearing it or whatever it is. It's not, it goes unnoticed. But it certainly has a powerful effect. Psychoanalysis started with suggestion, started with hypnosis, which is a form of suggestion, but it was very gross, it was very crude. The old 19th century practitioners of suggestion would kind of overpower people with the force of their personality and plant, you know, with a spade almost suggestions in their minds. Now we have a much better grasp of what suggestion is and how subtle it can be and how this old way of suggestion, a very crude instrument compared to what, to what we have now. And this kind of interaction goes on constantly between people and it forms a basis for people kind of uniting with each other and it forms a basis for people uniting against other people. And it's not communication per, sweat, per se. I, I said before, I didn't think communication was quite the right word. It's, it's something more like synchronization. People read each other, and it's much easier to sync up with the other person than not to, especially with certain, you know, when what's at stake are, are certain powerful needs of people. So we were talking the last time about Beyond's basic assumption groups that a couple forms a basic assumption group. There's a certain things that, that need to be conveyed and need to be communicated back and forth. And if they're not, it's very uncomfortable. If you've ever had the experience of being shunned by a group of people, uh, you know, where, where this kind of back and forth and rapport is, is not happening, synchronization is not happening, um, you know how, how terrible that is, now how powerful that is, and how you really will do almost anything to, to avoid it. So I want to just break in here because 
when you said if if you've ever had the experience of being shunned today I was talking and earlier I talked to Diana Johnstone about how people are regulated now particularly by sort of liberal conversational standards. If somebody disagrees with whatever the ideology is, they're shunned. And it may be subtle or it may be distinct. Um, some, somebody today that I was interviewing said that over the um, holiday, she was in, with some people in California where somebody in the group, there was a, a Thanksgiving celebration, had clearly uh, a couple were clearly, she said, Republicans. Everybody else was clearly a Democrat. The Republicans never said anything to indicate that they had, say, voted for Trump. But everybody in the group, she said, she was sure, thought that they had. And nobody asked the Republicans almost any questions. They were definitely left out of the group. So she ended up talking to the man and the couple. He's a very well-known person who started a company and so on. And he said, it just seems impossible anymore to have conversations with educated people because everything is regulated. But nobody had said anything specific. It was just that sense of being left out of the group with certain sounds. She said people would say, mm, huh, hmm, but then not go into any, you know, real interchange. So that sense of being monitored through a sort of propaganda of ideas is really very strong. I think especially in sort of liberal, neoliberal, progressive circles, there are certain topics you can't talk about. There are certain things you can't say. Nobody says you can't say them, but you don't get any responses. You know, and so it's just exactly what you're saying. There's a kind of group shunning, people pick it up, and there's this sense of, wow, there must be only one way to think about things. Yeah, and I think so. that, that happens regardless of politics. But what I'm interested in is, is the power of it. Yeah. Uh, the power, it, it, can be very pain, it can be a very painful experience, and so you want to maintain a good vibe. And, and this is particularly true with people you depend on, people who are important to you. That you're attached to, and the sort of the language of attachment, the people that are in your, you know, mother, father, sister, brother, partner, that kind of thing that you're attached to. Well, I'm thinking specifically of, of authority figures that, oh. you, that you're attached to because uh, you're dependent on them for, some, for something. You mean when you're a child or? Any authority figure. I mean, people have authority figures when they grow up too, uh, you know. But it, and they're important. You're sort of idealizing them and so on. So you want to like a teacher. You, you want them to like you, and so you don't want to cross them unless okay. you really have to. This kind of under the radar, powerful connection that I think forms automatically uh, between every every between people, who, whoever you are. The, the, the only exceptions that, as going back to Condon's work, the only exceptions that he found to this kind of responsiveness were in people with brain damage, uh -huh. schizophrenics, and uh -huh. autistics. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Aside from those categories, which uh -huh. we can all understand would not be responsive, uh -huh. everyone, everyone's responsive like that. So it's 
so subliminal, so under the radar, mm -hmm. and so powerful at the same time that it acts as a powerful vehicle of suggestions. Mm -hmm. So that if I let it be known, I don't even have to say so explicitly, just by my facial expression or my tone of voice. If I let it be known that I would, uh, it would be nice if you thought in this direction, <laughs> you know, that this is a better way to think. And you want to be part of the group. You want to be uh, part of this group you're, you're bonded with. Are you talking about here, if you let it be known, if you are in the position of authority or it's a basic assumption group and so you're in the position of being the one who's in the godlike position. Are you talking about that kind, if I let it be known? Well, if it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be that drastic. I mean, I think, uh, I, I believe that probably any relationship, any group has a basic assumption aspect to it. But yes, that's what I'm talking about. You don't have to be godlike. You just have to be somebody, someone look up to, people look up to, or they. You're in a very powerful position, and uh, you know, if someone said to you, "Well, you know, I think you're leading this group. I think you're kind of telling people what to think." Who me? And that genuine, genuine who me? Because you mm. don't know you're doing it. Right. We all have wishes for other people. Mm. Okay. Ah. Con we know consciously we shouldn't nag them about it all the time because that's not a it's not considerate b it doesn't work but we all have wishes mm -hmm. and we can express these wishes unconsciously using this channel mm -hmm. of communication and have a very powerful effect and we don't even know we're doing it so the who me can be quite genuine mm -hmm. okay? and it goes back and forth it's not just one person or another because people who depend on each other are in a position to do that. That's, it's technically, mm -hmm. in psychoanalytic terminology, it's known as projective identification. Right, right. But uh, that's one of the ways that suggestion works. And then the question is, this is not two sentences, the question is, what, if anything, can be done other than that? Okay. That's the question for psychoanalysis. So one thing that I would say, though, and I think this is important, I really do, I think those wishes that we have for others tend to be mostly in our close relationships. I think the reason it's a relief to be around strangers is that we don't have many wishes for strangers. We want, you know, we want them to not hit us with their car or walk on the right side of the street, but we don't have that kind of sense of projection or the desire to control. And so it's a relief to be with people that we don't have that with because we don't have to actually do stuff with them. You know, we can say hello and goodbye and have a nice day and it, it doesn't actually lead to anything else. It works both ways. That's right. That's what I mean. It's so it's a relief. And, and we're now in this COVID shutdown. And so we're not with strangers much. We're almost all on the line all the time with the people that we have expectations about. nearest about. and dearest. Yeah. yeah. And so, so. It's, that's, it's very stressful because we don't get out to be with strangers. You know, and I think that strangers give us a breath of fresh air for this very reason. That's a good point. You know, yeah. it's, it's not this kind of relating that you're talking about. That's a good point. It produces, uh, you know, a sense of being controlled and the feeling that the other person is, is trying to control you, which actually has reality to it because they are... No, well, because <laughs> not, maybe not to the yeah. degree you think so, <laughs> right. but there's something there because we're all human, we all have wishes, and these wishes get conveyed. You know, Freud said about uh, one of his patients, it's, it is impossible for a human being to lie. 
If their lips, if they do not speak with their lips, they will betray it with their fingers. Yeah, and he got a lot of criticism because that was Doris, and it was the um, his reading, Dora, his reading of the case was very patriarchal, and there must be 35 criticisms uh, written by feminists about his reading of the fingers of Dora. You know, because he said that everybody reveals anyway what they're they're wishing and thinking. But unfortunately, that's interpreted by the observer, unless you actually have some way of checking with the other person. So again, in the framework of projection, with the people that are closest to you, you're watching their fingers more than you are the strangers. You know, and so you may project meaning into them where you don't with a stranger. Yeah. Well, the point is, uh, I guess the moral of that story is even a patriarch can come up with an insight every once in a while. But, but well. I, I, I happen to think that people do betray, <laughs> betray in, the, in these subtle ways. Mm-hmm. And we pick up on it without knowing we're picking up on it. And their channel of, through which this kind of, I'll use the word propaganda now, right. propaganda yeah. is right. transmitted. Right. This desire to control is that channel. So yeah. it's, it's very widespread. It's yeah. not just yeah. the poster on the wall. Right. It happens all the time. And people would, would fight with you to, to, to tell you it's not propaganda. You know what I mean? When, when these, the, the subtlety of what you're talking about is so is fertile ground for propaganda because they don't, you know, they would never think it's propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the, that part of the problem here is that there is a problem with a, what's called observer phenomenon. You know, it's okay if you're an infant trying to read your mother's face or if you're a partner and your emotional impact from the other person's eyebrow but to go too far with it, like Freud did with Dora, where he's trying to read specific meanings into her gestures, then you get into the area of projection. Right. You know, and so it's a, it's a subtle line. I mean, I think that the way that, that Robert's describing this kind of emotional entrainment that happens particularly among people that know each other or people who agree about their ideology. There is also an entrainment about their ideology, like we were talking about this sort of liberal, neoliberal, authoritarian dialogues that are going on, or you know, conversations that can't be dialogues. There's an entrainment. There's an emotional entrainment that's happening in the group. But if you get too specific in putting your own meanings on somebody else's gestures, then that's called prejudice, that's called bias, or that's called projection or attribution. Then it's not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That. You can't read too much into it. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is on the level of what's ordinarily called something like vibes. Yeah, you, you yeah. Can pick up subtle a vibe. communication. People now, talk about you can that mis- all the time. misinterpret. Yeah. Yeah. You misinterpret it too. Yeah. You can yeah. misinterpret it. But on the other hand, you can also pick it up. Mm-hmm. That happens sometimes. Uh, and, uh, even and even if the other person, you could check with the other person and say, "No, no, no, no," because right. and they're and they're not because they're not to. conscious of they're it. They're not lying to you. They just don't know it. 
Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.